podcast uses profanity and topics may be disturbing for some listeners. Listen at your own risk. Welcome back to Hell on Heels podcast. I'm Bryce. I'm Brianna. I'm Amanda. And hello. Bree is joining us today with her demon echo. Um, <laughs> we can't figure that out, so <laughs> let's hope that it's not on recording, but whatever if it is. Uh, sorry, y'all. I'm also telling a story today, so uh, y'all are... Yeah, Amanda gets to sit and listen quietly, but... <laughs> no, I meant uh, Brie and her friend. Her oh, feedback yeah. friend. <laughs> fair. Very fair. <laughs> I currently have been experiencing paranormal activities, and um, yeah, they they just seem to repeat everything that I say, so... Yeah. Her paranormal Maybe. activity is a parrot? <laughs> yes. Literally. <laughs> but it sounds exactly like me. Actually, it does not sound exactly like you. Really? What does it sound it's like? deeper. A man. Yeah, it does sound like a man. Wait, that's actually so fucking creepy. But we it's Brie and Antabri. Yeah. Wait, what's the male version of Brie? Brian. Bro. Brian. Bro. Well, of it's Brianna Brie and Brian. 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 It's Ooh. fine. <laughs> um, We know, at least we know it's just the recording. It's not like there's... It's not like a creepy voice that your significant other makes randomly in the background that you have to think is a ghost. No. But. Are you, y'all, now I kind of want to like try turning off my computer and turning it back on because that's actually really creepy. I, I don't think hear the more right that we're talking, it, you can't hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. As in you get used to it or as in it goes away? As in I'm not hearing it. Okay. That's good. Y'all really so. creep me out for a second. <laughs> think about how really creeps me out for a second think about how we felt okay literally told like five minutes into us trying to figure this stuff out once we start the podcast yeah um the voice that is mimicking you kind of sounds like a dude's what we said that earlier excuse me you was it i did not creepy? hear that was it, it was more creepy, creepy if it was well, a woman well no so i thought that it was literally just like an echo you know like I say something, you know, it echoes me, right? But because I said no, echo. It's, it's literally yeah, exactly. No, it's a second it's, voice. That's why I said yeah. second voice initially, and then you <laughs> gave me a look of disbelief, so I changed it to echo. You're just trying to spare your feelings, and then I guess we just said fuck it. <laughs> Creepy as hell. I forgot okay. I was sparing your feelings. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> any uh, updates from either of you? It's been a couple weeks since we recorded because we didn't record last week. We did it. Oh, yeah, town. How was that? It was good. It was um, it was an adventure because we decided to drive, which wasn't terrible because it was it was only an eight hour drive, so it could have been worse. But it was still an eight hour drive there and back, so sixteen hours total for one weekend. So I think it was a bit much for that. I think if we were to do it again in that distance, we would have an extra day there. But the show that we went to was really good. Aside from the girls in front of us talking that would not shut up. But that's fine. <laughs> you want me to hit him? God, I wish. I was waiting for Cody to say something <laughs> and he never did. So I'm a little disappointed in him. I literally would have been the one to say something. Jack Jack would have been like, no, 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 Brianna, Brianna stop. Stop it. Stop. I would have been like, no. Like, they need to... It, yeah. I, I'm in the middle of my show. They can yeah. talk on their own fucking time. Well, that's what I don't get is why would you spend like at least two of them were talking? So that's a, I think it was like $150. Yeah. 
total for the two of them. Why would you spend that much money to talk through a comedy show? Like, it doesn't make sense. Maybe they were funnier. They I were. mean, I doubt it, but maybe. I could hear they them. They were funnier. They definitely were not. They should not pursue a comedy career. They also Younger got very here. bitter when someone told them to shut the fuck up, and um, they didn't like that. I just was not the one to tell them to shut up. So Hey, $75 for this ticket. I'm going to tell you to shut up if you're ruining my night. I'd already seen it, so it was just Cody, and he was zoning him out. Because I saw it yes, in Vegas he- with my sister. I can't. I can't zone out in situations like that because my tinnitus won't allow me to. <laughs> so it's like, you shut up or I'm going to be real passive aggressive here with lots of throat clearing and snifflings if you don't. Yeah, I was doing that and they weren't getting it. So I was hoping Cody would get the hint. And I did say something oh. to Cody, but I apparently have to explicitly tell him that he has to say something. <laughs> Luckily, James has a short temper, so I don't ever have to wait. Well, Unfortunately, Cody used uh, to. Yeah, unluckily, I'm usually the recipient of that temper. So, <laughs> Brianna is the one with the short temper in this relationship. <laughs> I have a short temper, but I'm able to control it in public because I'm like, I don't know you. I don't mm-hmm. know you. Don't know what you're going through, though. I did know what those girls were going through and no one cared. <laughs> Anyways, but yes, it was good. We had fun. It was nice and relaxing. Um, our hotel was close enough that we could walk to a bunch of things, so it didn't matter that much. But we still had our car, so we didn't have to get a rental or things like that. But it was good. Yeah, that is a long drive for only a weekend. But oh my god, hope it was worth it. Back home in Alabama is literally eight hours from here, so I feel you. I don't feel bad for you, and I miss I my family. But still, that's a sucky drive. I'm not yeah. complaining. I mean, it was eight hours from that. Fayetteville to Austin too when I lived there. So I yeah. feel you. I'm definitely not complaining, but I mean, it's just, it was long. We would change it. We learned our lesson is what I'm saying. So That's actually why I married James is so we wouldn't have to do that drive anymore. That's the only reason. You didn't love him, nothing like that? You just didn't want to drive to him anymore? No, that's gross. I just didn't <laughs> want to drive to him anymore. You know what? That's funny that you say that <laughs> because that's basically uh, the couple that I'll talk about today. They got married, so they didn't want to drive to each other anymore. I love it. So, anyways, any other updates? Anything <laughs> exciting happened in the past two weeks? Oh, we got iced in. I oh, that's the house exciting. Yeah, I love it. It's it's starting to melt now. Um, but I you have the, the freaking cold weather. I love it so much. I can't stand you. I laughed so never... hard because uh, James was knocking all the ice off his like two days of ice off of his car. And I picked up a piece and I slammed it on. Because these are big chunks of ice, right? I slammed it down on the ground thinking that it would shatter and just having that joy that you get from that. But it didn't. It, I slammed it down onto my driveway and it slid across the front of my yard into the neighbor's, dri- into the neighbor's yard and hit the wheel of their van. Did Excuse it me? It? No. It never fucking broke. It just slid down well, the, no, did, the did road. Did it the wheel? No, no, it wasn't that big of a piece, but that like that's what it took for the stupid hockey puck to stop sliding. I didn't know that was going to happen. I thought it was going to shatter and I was going to have a joyous day. As I live in Texas, you will never ever, I don't think in a million years, hear me say that I got iced in or snowed <laughs> in. That's not true. I'm pretty sure you guys all got frozen over not too long ago. Last that was year? only ice though. 
It was well, only, I mean, technically that's ice thin. Mm-hmm. That's what happened here. We okay. didn't get any snow because my ass would be out there in it. Just <laughs> oh, ice. we got snow. It's been snowing on and off like all week. Yeah, I'm waiting for my packet. Utonians, Utah, Utahns, Utahns. Is that what you're called? Utahns. Utahns. Yeah. Okay. Utonians is fine too, I guess, but. No, that's like Houstonians. (laughs) People from Houston, we call them Houstonians. Yeah. (laughs) Utahns. We're Utahns. How do you spell that? Is it H A N S or A I N S? I think it's just N S. I don't oh, think yeah. they put an A. U T A A N S. Utahns. Utah. Oh, that's horrible. I don't like it. I don't know. Maybe they throw an A N S. I think U T A. I don't know how they spell it. I don't know how to say it. Utah N S. That's it. Done deal. Utahs. Yeah. U T A H N S. Oh, U T A H A. No. U T A H N S. Okay, yeah. Utahns. That sends a shiver down my spine. It just doesn't look right. I can see it in my head. Like, I see in, or I think in words, whatever. That's how my brain works, and I just do not like it. Yeah. Oh, that's even better. Bree wrote it down. I don't have paper near me. Yeah. I said I didn't like it. Why are you showing it to me? I feel attacked right now. Um, by the well, word feel Utahns. attacked because I felt attacked when you didn't tell me that there was a male voice echoing me. Because he wasn't I, attacking you. He was just mocking was. you. <laughs> so creepy as hell. Oh, God. All right. All right. I think we, Bree and I both have rather long, longer stories today. So we should probably dive on in. Are you ready, yeah, Bree? let's do it. Okay. I sure am. It is all yours. <clears throat> all right. Let's go. I also already have picture one open. Sorry. That's Okay. Picture one is Elizabeth Short, and I will get into the other pictures later. Elizabeth Short was a beautiful young woman known for her after-death name, coined by the media as the Black Dahlia. She tended to wear many black clothing, and therefore, after her death, she was kind of just coined the Black Dahlia because of all of this black clothing that she would wear. She was even said to wear a black ring as well. Short grew up in... Yeah, <laughs> you're wearing black right now. Yes, I see Most you. Every day. <laughs> Short grew up in, and their different sources kind of say different things, but roughly the general consensus was that she grew up in Medford, which is a, sweet, a quaint town south of Boston, Massachusetts. Her parents separated when she was young at about six, and her father moved to California with only one out of the five family children with him. And I'm not exactly sure why the sources that I read didn't really say this, but it just said that this was a fact. Her mother had a difficult time taking care of the children and just kind of putting meals on the table in general. Elizabeth left her home in 1942 at 17, where she ventured off to Miami and reportedly became a waitress. According to Encyclopedia.com, quote, she soon fell in love with a young soldier, but the country was at war and he was killed in battle. It was said that Short found solace in drink and other men, end quote. One night she was out drinking with soldiers in a cafe where she was arrested for being underage. She was given a train ticket back to Medford by the authorities 
and she was told to essentially return home. Well, she left on this train, but she didn't exit at her hometown. She exited a few stops before and found yet another waitressing job. She fell in love yet again with Army Air Force Major Matt M. Gordon Jr. And in 1944, she went back to her hometown to wait for Gordon to come home, Gordon Jr. But on August 22nd, 1946, she received a telegram from Gordon's mother that said he was killed in action. So the following day, Elizabeth set her sails up and headed for California in pursuit of someday becoming a famous movie actress. She started her acting career by joining... I can see her as an actress. Right? She's really, like, got that face. I will say, though, that that star quality. She does. I will say that curl on the front of her, like the very front, it keeps reminding me of an elephant trunk. Okay, that's one picture that I gave to you. Sorry. No, I, she's still beautiful. I think she's still gorgeous. It's just that one curl. Anyways, okay. go I can, I can see it, but I still, I like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's a signature. It's her signature yes. piece. She started her acting career by joining the Hollywood casting lines to work as an extra. And she was known for her beauty. Although her name, the Black Dahlia, did not stick until after death, she really lived up to this name. Okay, so Dahlia literally means wealth and elegance. And it also stands for love and involvement. And the Black Dahlia, because she wore all of these dark, darker clothes, she was really said to like live up to that in her life. I can see that name for her. Yeah. I like it. I do too. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, on January 15th, 1947, a mother took her child for a walk in Los Angeles neighborhood when they stumbled upon the body of Elizabeth Short. She was naked. I said naked in my notes. She was naked and sliced clean in half at her waist. Her body was only a few feet from the sidewalk and the woman who found her reportedly thought she was a married a mannequin at first, despite the extensive mutilation and cuts on Short's body, there wasn't a single drop of blood. At no scene. blood. I don't. These cases where there's no blood, I don't understand. Yes, Amanda. I have a theory. She yes, was dumped Amanda. there. She wasn't killed there. I still. There's Literally, still my next blood. sentence. My <laughs> next sentence says indicating that she had been killed elsewhere. Mic drop. But not According really, to many sources as well, a tattoo of a rose had been sliced from her thigh and placed inside of her vagina. Wait, uh, repeat no, no, that. What? I, that didn't process up here. It didn't really process for me too. But from what I understand, a, they carved, whoever did this, carved out a tattoo of a rose on like her skin. Sh- she already had the tattoo or like they carved it into her skin? She already had the tattoo. Okay. And they cut it off. Okay. Yeah. Her face was brutally smashed, presumably while still alive, and the corners of her mouth had been cut in the glass glow smile. For and those why of you who- Sorry, why is this feeling personal? Um, because they shoved a flower in her flower and forced her to smile after beating her face in. Just a thought. For those of you who don't know what the glass glow smile is, the best way I can describe it is the Joker smile. 
It is a, quote, wound caused by making a cut from the corners of a victim's mouth up to the ears, leaving a scar in the shape of a smile, end quote, according to Wikipedia, which is very accurate in this sense, in in this particular sense. Don't rely on Wikipedia, y'all. The coroner determined Short died of hemorrhage and shock from concussion and facial lacerations. It's sad. I mean, this woman was brutally just taken apart. I mean. Okay. Um, so was she alive for most of this? I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. All I know is that she died from face, facial lacerations and from hemorrhage. So most likely she was. Because if she died from facial lacerations, then the facial laceration on her and the hemorrhage. Oh my, I don't like that. Elizabeth's case was led by the LA Police Department, or LAPD as now, as I will call it in the future. And the FBI were asked to assist. FBI quickly identified her body in 56 minutes exactly according to FBI.gov. This was after investigating. They used blurred fingerprints via sound photo. And FBI.gov explains this as a primitive fax machine used by news services. Short's prints appeared twice because she previously applied for a job as a clerk in the commissionary of the Army's Camp Cook in California in January of 1943 and she also appeared again due to her arrest for drinking underage. Her mugshot was provided to the press by the Bureau, which I really don't get because if you're trying to paint a picture of this cute, sweet, innocent girl, why would you give them her mugshot? But it is what it is. Maybe it's she still looks cute and innocent in her mugshot. I couldn't find it anywhere, to be honest. I mean, I looked on Google Images for... Hey, I found it. Actually, I don't know if that's her. Well, see, that's the thing. So it was really hard for me to find photos for y'all today because there is actually a show dedicated to telling about the Black Dahlia murders. And it's fiction, obviously, but it's just so hard to see. Let me see real fast. I can't tell Santa if that's her. Barbara Police Department. Let me make sure. It looks like her. From the side angle. Hey, I found it, but it's on my phone. Which one does it look like? Because I, I sent one on Discord. Well, this is on FBI.gov. Okay, but it doesn't match the one I sent on Discord? Oh, let me see. Oh, wait, it's from FBI.gov? That might actually be the one. Yep, that's it. Okay. Whoop. There you have it. Maybe I didn't look hard enough. Um, I also added the keyword mugshot at the end. Mm-hmm. Oh, I added arrest photos. <laughs> oh. Just depends on keywords. Okay, yeah. Sorry. No, you're good. You're good. I actually did see that photo, but I didn't think that it was her mugshot because it just said because it didn't give the like the number. Okay. The police department quickly put out a report in issue daily, dated Tuesday, January twenty first, nineteen forty seven. Her description in the newspaper read, "Quote: Female, American, twenty two years." Five foot six inches, 118 pounds, black hair, green eyes, very attractive, bad lower teeth, fingernails chewed to quick, subject on whom information was last seen January 9th, 
1947, when she was outside of car at Biltmore Hotel. At that time, she was wearing black suit, no collar, on coat, probably cardigan style, white fluffy blouse, black suede high-heeled shoes, nylon stockings, white gloves, full-length beige coat, carried plastic handbag, two handles, 12 by 8 inch, in which she had a black address book, end quote. So it's very, the description of her could literally be any black-haired woman with green eyes that was five foot six inches. They didn't it, talk about that mole she's got, her beauty mark, which... It yeah, doesn't give, so. like, any distinctive mm-hmm. fact. I you know everyone had bad teeth. I mean, braces weren't even a thing back then. It's like you could have been a not... little nicer about that, too. Yeah. You could have well, worded that. It yeah. just felt unnecessary. Like, why don't you just flat out say she's got some jacked up mouth? Like, Thank that was you. mean. Thank you could have been a little nicer. Thank you. Literally, I I said that, but then I completely deleted it. And I was like, no, no, no. Th- this story is already as long as it needs to be. And then I'm glad that y'all said that. <laughs> Okay. So LAPD did an investigation and found that Short's friends hadn't heard from her for about six days before her death. And this led them to believe that she was kidnapped before being killed. Did they tell anybody? They did tell. Yeah. Somewhat. No, not in the slightest. Okay. I wish. Listeners, if your friend disappears and you think they may be kidnapped, probably not a bad idea to tell just off the top of my head the police. Yeah, probably a good idea. Mm-hmm. Be a good friend. I don't feel like you're a great friend if you don't call. Like maybe yeah. good, not great, but. Yeah. Don't be an out of sight, out of mind friend. Well, here's what you do. You go in, you tell the police department, you know, get your story straight, then go straight to the media because the police department isn't going to, like, believe you at first until you actually show them solid evidence that this person could most likely be dead. Well, if they're talking kidnap, that's a missing missing person's case, mm-hmm. which they should be taking seriously after six days. Well, this, I mean, they really didn't do a lot of investigation prior to this because they just i i don't think that anybody contacted the police if i'm being completely frank i think that it was only after they announced that it was elizabeth short that people started coming out and saying this kind of stuff well that's what we mean is like if you're going to be her friend call the police so that something can happen very true okay here's the case now according to a world in pages there i couldn't really find any authors for this, but according to A World in Pages, nine days after Short's body had been found, the Los Angeles examiner received a letter written with cutouts from movie adverts. And ver- end quote. And ver- end quote. <laughs> okay. Um, I've included this picture of the letter, and I believe this one is the first one. Yep. It says Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers here exclamation mark, is Dahlia's, quote, belongings, letter to follow, end quote. The envelope enclosed her social security card, birth certificate, and some snapshots, presumably headshots, she kept for her starting up acting career. She also, it also included an address book with 
some pages missing, which was very bizarre. Well, this is this just sounds like below the like it's very personal. Like you're taking a birth certificate, you know that she's got or there's these mug shots and and I don't know in the sixties did people just carry around their birth certificate? I don't think they did, but maybe I think so. I mean, it's just I guess you know she didn't. It doesn't seem like she had a driver's license, so maybe she held on to that for, I don't know, going into bars and stuff, because at the time of her death, she was 22, reportedly. And what year was this again? 47. It still just feels weird to carry yeah. that. I don't think they carried birth certificates. I don't know. But police got this stuff, and they tried to test for fingerprints. But um, every single one of Short's belongings was cleans off before the envelope had been sent with gasoline. So the police had nothing to go off of. There were no fingerprints. There was nothing, nothing that could lead them to this case, to who committed this murder. Another handwritten letter also followed. And I believe this is one. Yeah. Okay. And it's like on an envelope, but some people say that it's. What is up? Sorry, go Brie. Some people say that that's just the letter, and some people say that it's just the envelope. Or I, I don't know. But okay, what's up with these murderers writing on envelopes? Dorothea Puente had an envelope moment. I know she didn't, but someone wrote on an envelope. This person's writing on an envelope. With Puente, I kind of understand because he was just trying to slip something to the police. Like, oh, this is here. Let's do this. But like this guy, you you've got time. Get a piece of paper. Valid. All right. This letter read as follows, or this envelope read as follows. Here it is. Turning in wed, as in Wednesday, January 24, 10 a.m. Had my fun with police. End quote. And the with is, it's kind of cut off. A little bit. I'm pretty sure that it's just W and then a slash, but to me, it kind of looks like an A. So it could be had my fun A police. I don't know, but with just sounds more reasonable. It's also signs Black Dahlia Avenger. What? Avenger? I don't know. He's not an Avenger. I think he needs a vocabulary lesson. Yeah. He's not Thor. Or Captain America. Well, once I get into my suspects, we can dive into that information a little further. Well, not all of them, but one of them. And you'll just have to wait for that one. According to A World in Pages, 13 letters were sent to the press and to police departments, and many of them were signed Black Dahlia Avenger. A fingerprint was found on one of these letters, but... Unfortunately, the FBI could not match it to any in the database at the time. So, again, LAPD had nothing to go off of. Now, LAPD contacted the 75 men in Short's address book, but the majority of them claimed to have only met Short for a short period of time and may have been going on a dinner date with her or go to see the movies, but communication was just cut off pretty fast. Also, about 300 medical students from the University of Southern California were investigated, but nothing was found. 
Now, the last sighting of Short is debated. Many reports put her at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown LA, which is what the Issue Daily said in the newspaper article that I read to y'all. But other reports say she checked in at a hotel and she walked to the Crown Grill Bar, which was a couple of blocks away. Also, fun fact, I know that it's not my paranormal, but at this hotel that she checked into, it's rumored that her ghost can be seen roaming the 10th and 11th floors in a black dress. Ooh. Kind of spooky. I mean, it's not as bad as having a man echo you, but... (laughs) Shut the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) Did you just have to turn on your, your microphone just to laugh? She does that yes, all the time. I did. Yeah. I see her do it all the time. Okay. Y'all, now you have all of the basic information of the case. Now I'm going to give you the suspects. And there are a ton of suspects for this case because it was never solved. It is an unsolved murder, murder and many of these stories are actually pretty convincing. So let me get into it. A guy named Robert Manley was a married man who had a relationship with Short on the side about a month or so before her murder. He saw her at a bus stop in San Diego and offered to give her a ride home. After some coercion, she eventually gave in and just let him drive her home. After this, they went on a bunch of dates within the San Diego area. Short had a place that she was staying at that ended up falling through. And she asked Manley to pick her up and they eventually drove her, he eventually drove her to Los Angeles to help her check in at none other than the Biltmore Hotel. Manley was considered a suspect at the time, but it's reported that he left Los Angeles to go back to San Diego roughly about a week before Short's body was found. Oh, I'm sorry, y'all can go. I didn't actually explain that fourth one but that's just one of another one of the letters y'all can go into the fifth picture because that's robert manley um where was i where you were so into the story you missed me and amanda react to his name yeah (laughs) my bad (laughs) (laughs) just like turn and you know do the the flex in the leg you know show off Mm -hmm. those thigh muscles um, Sorry, go on. He ended up passing two polygraph tests and was given sodium pentothal during the investigation. And even when his story was influenced by this truth serum, it apparently matched his story enough so that police took Manley off their radar. And so in 1954, Manley's wife had him committed to Patton State Hospital because he was supposedly hearing voices. 39 years to the day after last seeing Short, Manley passed after falling in his apartment, which is kind of bizarre, but I don't know, maybe she was like his one true love or something, you know? Anyways, um, this one I don't have a lot of information on, but the next two I do, so just bear with me. Joseph Dumas, or maybe Dumais, could be French, was an army corporal, and 
claimed to have been blackout drunk with Short in San Francisco a couple days before her body was discovered in downtown LA. He also confessed to her murder. And what you can't just scooch on past that. Yeah. Yeah, y'all like, didn't do that in. Yeah, he, he literally confessed to her murder. Okay, this is the guy. What, what's the problem here? The Put police investigated, but it was found that Dumay was actually on military base the day of Short's death. Now, I do find this a bit odd because no information that I found gives me the exact day and time that she passed. Because, yes, she was found on January 15th, 1947. But this guy was said to have been blackout drunk literally two nights before that. And that would have just, gosh, let's, let's say that she was found. No, no, no. Two, two nights before that he was found blackout drunk with her. Okay. You're right. You're right. I was confused. Go on. And it's just bizarre because he did confess. He could have easily planted her body there a day or two prior and no one would have seen it until the woman reported it. I don't know. See, I don't know either because if I guess I could all I know that sometimes people confess to murders and other crimes that they haven't done. I don't know why. I know it's a plethora of reasons, but maybe for some reason he thought like maybe they had an argument or something that night and he's actually not guilty, but he thinks he is. Or maybe he maybe. has guilt because he was the last one to saw see her and Yeah. That could be true as well. It could be very true. But it's all a mystery because literally nobody knows who killed the Black Dahlia. Now, I apologize, but um, this next suspect takes up about another two pages. And then the next one takes up about another two pages. Oh, and then there's also a third, a, another one that I forgot about. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's get into it. Got it. Wait, where was I? Okay. George Hodo was a wealthy doctor who was said to be very well-connected. He studied surgery in medical school and ran L.A. County's venereal disease clinic. George's son, Steve Hodel, who worked as an LAPD detective on... Sorry, on many murder cases and was only five at the time of the murder, believes that his father was guilty of this murder. Hodel, or George, I'll be calling him Hodel from now on because his son is Steve, had this secret room in his house that his children were not allowed to enter. When Hodel passed, Steve found photos of a woman who looked an awful lot like Short. They were examined by many forensic artists who claimed they were 85% sure that the woman in these photos was not Elizabeth Short. Based on what? Based on forensic artistry. I don't know. But in 2014, another forensic artist used facial recognition, which resulted in an overall 95% chance that the woman in these photos was in fact short. But the results came to be inconclusive which i don't get i i know it's just it's so much 
I can't. Okay. Many people actually believed Short had a romantic relationship with Hodo. And they were seen several times at a hotel together in downtown L.A. Steve believes his father's handwriting matched the letter sent to the LAPD, but again, results range from probably to just inconclusive. On January 9th, 1947, Hodel got concrete bags delivered to his home for remodeling it. These bags suspected by the police to be what could have moved Short's body to begin with. And they were very similar to the ones found near her body, which Steve points out as well. Hodel also drove a 1936 Packard, Black Packard, which was similar to the description of the black car spotted near an empty lot next to where Short's body was found. Now, Short's body and her glass glow smile was supposedly also positioned similar to the pose used of Man Ray. He was a surrealist artist at the time. Steve said his father admired Man Ray's work, Man Ray's work and the murders could have been his way of showing that. Tamar, Hodel's daughter, remembers these massive parties her, at her father's house that included guests like Man Ray and possibly other movie stars as well. Tamar also claimed she was forced to pose naked for Man Ray to photograph, and in 1949, she actually ran away from home and went straight to the police department, claiming her father tried to teach her of sex, oral sex, when she was only 11 years old and was offered to her friends when she was 14 by the hands of Hodel. Put him in jail. Put him under the jail. However... Many family members testified against this, saying that Tamar was lying. A lot of people following this case believe this was because Hodel was the breadwinner of the family, and none of the family members wanted to give up their luxurious lifestyle. Put them all in jail. Agreed. Now, LAPD was suspicious of Hodel and placed bugs in his home that recorded for 40 days. These tapes just mysteriously vanished. There's no evidence of the tapes, but we do have the transcripts of them. Hodel was recorded to have said, Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. End quote. Casual. Why would... What? Why is that even a conversation? If it shouldn't be a they can't prove it, it, it wasn't me. There will be yeah. nothing to show it was me because I didn't do it. Like, you'll, the evidence will point to the correct person. Like, that's what, what, what? And then just to say, like, my secretary, she's gone. Like, what? Did you also exactly. kill your secretary, sir? Yes. It, this, 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 I'm sorry, this podcast is not about that, but I can maybe do that next week. <laughs> Two weeks, three weeks from now. Oh, another transcript could have also described the sound of a woman being attacked in the basement. What? Could, so it's only the transcript, but it's said by a couple of sources to have possibly been the sound or the transcript of a sound of a woman being attacked in the basement. FBI transcriptionists are not paid enough. They're not. I don't know what they make, but it's not enough. 
they should yeah. have more than anyone. They should be bajillionaires. Yeah, agreed. Well, this was LAPD. This was not the FBI. Just want oh, to clarify God, that's that. even worse. Those poor people. It gets better. In 1950, investigation into Hodo was dropped unexpectedly when LAPD claims that these transcripts cleared him. Although he is recorded to have said in these transcripts, quote, this is the best payoff I've seen between law enforcement agencies, and I like to get a connection made in the DA's office, end quote. What? Supporting a theory that Hodel knew of corruption happening within the LAPD. But nonetheless, all physical evidence from the Hodel investigation is still missing to this day. I don't... How does... Am I able to hide from this? Because this is painful. According to A World in Pages, in 1950, Hodel moved to the Philippines. In 1967, a woman was found posed and dissected in an empty lot just half a mile from where Hodel was living. He returned to the USA and died in 1991. He was never linked to that case, by the way, but it's very similar. Flash forward to 2012, when Steve went back to his former home. He went in with police dogs, hoping to find anything that would lead him in the right direction. And... Luckily enough, Steve's dogs picked up the sense of human remains on the property and in alleyways behind their house. He took soil sample he, he took soil samples, which soon came back positive for human remains. He should although, have human remains left and right. Although these samples were not taken at the time that he was investigating, and therefore they were not associated with the Black Dahlia case. And LAPD just straight up refused to follow up on them. So we still have no idea what whose ro- remains those were, but we know that they're human remains. I mean, there's a chance they couldn't detect whose remains they were. But LAPD refused to follow up. They can, but they just didn't. And this guy's still not guilty of anything in any country? Well, he died in 1991. This was in 2012. But yes. What the fuck? Okay. So the reason that I've been calling him Hodel was because there's actually another George as well. So bear with me. Another George witness. George Knowlton. More than 40 years after the Black Dahlia made headlines in Los Angeles, Janice Nowelton said, quote, horrifying long repressed memories had convinced her that George Nowelton, her long dead father, had murdered Short, according to Dennis McClellan from LA Times. Janice was 10 at the time, as McClellan states, and said she witnessed her rage filled father beat short with a claw hammer in the detached garage of the family home in Westminster. End quote. Oh my God. Noelton believed her father had an affair with short and that she was staying in a makeshift bedroom within their garage. There, short is reported by Noelton to have had a miscarriage. She also said that no, 
Noelton also said that she was forced to be with her father when he got rid of Short's body. In 1991, Noelton got the Westminster police detected to search for any evidence on the empty lot of her former family home that linked her father to the Black Dahlia murder case. But according to McClellan, nothing to warrant a criminal investigation was ever found. She later wrote a 1995 book called Daddy Was the Black Dahlia Killer that tells the story of her life filled with rape and with murder. In the same article from McClellan, Noelton is described as leaving a voicemail, many voicemails, to Harnage, and I hope I'm saying that right, a Times reporter who reported on Noelton's case that after a 2003 publication of Black Dolly Adventure, a genius for murder, a book written by Stephen, a genius for murder, which was a book written by Steve Hodel, as we formally know, that communication just stopped abruptly. It was very, very odd. So McClellan reports that Harnitch's curiosity was piqued by knowing silence was piqued by Noelton's silence after this magazine article. Harnitch began investigating and found that Noelton had died in her home just randomly. Her the Orange County's coroner's office classified the death, which escaped public notice, as a suicide by the combined effect of five different drugs. And y'all, I am getting into this story, but I have to kind of like tell this background a little bit first, so bear with me. Um, Jolaine Emerson, Noelton's stepsister, told the Times that she didn't believe Noelton meant to kill herself. Emerson is quoted to have said her book was trash and it wasn't even true. She believed it was, but it wasn't reality. I know because I lived with her father for 16 years. She also said that her stepfather, quote, could be meaner and ornery, 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 yeah, (laughs) ornery, than heck, but he wasn't a killer, end quote. John P. St. John, an LAPD homicide detective, told the Times in 1991 that the things that she is saying are not consistent with the facts of this case. However, many psychiatrists and experts on post-traumatic stress disorder that actually appeared with Noelton during talk shows that she appeared on actually found her story very plausible. And here's why. Noelton was diagnosed with severe depression and anxiety. Her therapist, Jim Frey, specialized in adults who were abused as children and spoke to the LA Times. McClellan says he studies, he said studies of post-traumatic stress disorder have found that replicating the adrenaline charge state of a person was in, in I'm sorry, let me re-say that. McClellan says he said studies of post-traumatic stress disorder had found that replicating the adrenaline charge state of a person who was that they were in when first traumatized could trigger emotional responses or memories of the event. And the newspaper story, Noelton said that after her mother and stepmother died and 
1980s, she began recalling experiences that justified the terror she had been feeling. She said that she remembered her father molesting her. She also said she recalled seeing him with a dismembered infant and burying a woman in a basement. He threatened to throw young Janice in the coal furnace and kill her mother if she told anyone, she said. End quote. Noelton is also said to have started recalling images of shorts, and her book dives into more details over the accompaniment of her father to Short's apartment, where he brought visitors to the apartment who raped his daughter. Noelton wrote in her book that her father had her come with him so that he could so that she could be his cover story in a way. She claimed he wanted to dispose of Short's body in the water at a pier close by, but found that it would not sink, so he later did in downtown LA. Newton was a co-author for Knowlton's book and told the Times in 1993 the physical description he gave to several of his neighbors before he passed fits George Knowlton to a T, right down to the fact of the compulsive deer hunting, the work in a foundry, and having come from excuse me, and having come from a New England town near where Short was born. To have another George who fit that description to me would be almost coincidental beyond the realm of possibility, end quote. So that is Nobleton. And now we get on to the final one. What do y'all think of that one? I feel like there shouldn't be this many people that could be it. Right. Because, well... So that's the thing. Because the Black Dahlia was such a huge, huge case, right? There, so many, and it just, it straight up has not been solved. There are just so many people who believe that so many. It's the different theories. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, Noelton said that. She recalls images of a woman who looks like short. It could have, her father could have also been a murderer, but maybe not of short. And Hodel, you know, I mean, it was first 85% sure that it wasn't short. Then it was 95% sure that it was short. So it just really depends. I mean, you can really look at it either way. But there are just so many theories as to who could have killed the Black Dahlia because it's such a wide, a widely known case. Everybody knows about it. Everyone's at least heard about it. Uh, final one. Leslie Dillon. And I hope I'm saying this name right. Pew Eatwell. Eatwell. So it's P-I-U space Eatwell. Eat well is one word. I got nothing for you. (laughs) Wrote a book called Black Dahlia Red Rose. And she describes it as the crime, corruption, and cover-up of America's greatest unsolved murderer. Murder. This book, in which Eatwell calls part detective story and part history, describes is described by Lauren Barcella, or Barcella, possibly from the Rolling Stone as tracing aspiring actress 
Elizabeth Short's final days, as well as the long, circuitous investigation conducted by a police department that bore overly intimate ties with both ganglands and the media. End quote. In this book, Eatwell makes a convincing argument for the identity of the Black Dahlia murderer as Leslie Duane Dillon. That's a guy, by the way. I didn't get that at first, but Leslie is a dude. Dylan is described by Barcella as a bellhop and one-time mortician's assistant who was briefly considered the case's primary suspect before police let him go. Eatwell says that Short's murderer went under the radar and off the hook because Sergeant Finnis Brown, one of the case's lead investigators, was supposedly corrupt and had links to Dylan's partner in Short's death who was Mark Hansen. According to Barcella from The Rolling Stone, she published this book and soon after people came in left and right offering different theories and information as to what could have happened. One specific story stood out to her because it not only validated the story, but also elaborated on this theory that both Dylan and Hansen were the murderers. Bear with me because there are a lot of names in this. Next paragraph. Buzz Williams was retired from Long Beach Police Department, or LBPD, and explains to Eatwell that his father, Richard F. Williams, served on the LAPD's gangster squad. The gangster squad was a task force that was originally created to investigate Short's murder. Richard, otherwise known as Dick Williams, was good friends with Con Keller, who was another gangster squad officer that originally suspected Leslie Dillon. Buzz said to the Rolling Stone that he would often go on fishing trips with his father, where he heard him and Keller talk about the Black Dahlia case. He remembered them saying they believed Dillon orchestrated the murder and with Two other men, Mark Hansen and a man named Jeff Connors, whom investigators originally just wrote off as a figment of Dylan's imagination. So, excuse me, how Dylan can you just w- be like, what? No, that that person doesn't sound real. I think you made him up. So Dylan was like the first one of like the first suspects, right? And they. I mean, they believed that Dylan did it, and I'll get into that information later, but he said, yeah, you know, I did it with Jeff Connors, or Jeff Connors did it, but I just sat and watched. So I guess police kind of thought, like, yeah, you know, that could be another personality, or that could be just, like, a figment of your imagination, like, you actually did it, you know all of these facts about it, like, you definitely did it. And he's like, no, I didn't. So... I'll get into more of it later. According to this article, quote, Williams believed they all conspired to kill Short when she became aware of a hotel robbery scam they were involved in. According to Eatwell, one of the last people reported to have spoken with Short was Hanson. 
Short supposedly stayed with Hanson for a couple nights here and there, and apparently the address book sent to police departments, and this is according to Bar- Barcella, or Barcella. This address book was, quote, embossed in gold with his name on the front, end quote, which I don't get because no other sources told me that whatsoever, but I'm just going off of what this information told me. But I guess it could have been Hansen's address book, but that just straight up wouldn't make any sense because it was said to have been Dahlia's belongings. And she was literally said to have had it in her possession when she... But also, wasn't it returned with... It was returned with all of her other possessions, exactly. It was returned with her birth certificate, certificate. with her social security card, exactly. It was returned with all of her other possessions, and it literally said, here are, quote, Dahlia's things. And it, I, I don't know why she would have an address book that literally had gold embossing with Hanson's name on the very front of it. And it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't whatsoever. But going back to the story, in 1949, the gangster squad came very, very close to arresting Dylan after he sent a letter under the, I forgot how to look this word up, P-S-E-U-D-O-N-Y-M. Pseudonym. 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 Yeah. Okay. After he sent a letter with the pseudonym, Jack Sands, to LAPD's chief police psychiatrist, Dr. Joseph Paul DeRiver. According to Eatwell, this letter suggested that an acquaintance named Jeff Connors may have killed Short as revenge after she threatened to reveal an affair not considered proper by the average person. And that was an affair... That was all quote. DeRivers believes that Connor was nothing more than a quote projection of Dylan's imagination. End quote. Yes. I had a question about the affair. What type of affair is considered proper? A black tie affair. <laughs> you got <laughs> I'm sorry. Was- <laughs> no choice. I'm not sorry. That was perfect. I'm so proud of you. I'm glad. (laughs) Dylan knew of many details about the Black Dahlia murder case that had not yet been disclosed to the public, which was very odd because, I mean, yeah, the police are going to suspect you if you know all of these random details that aren't released to the public. And he also said randomly that she was murdered in a motel room, which the police were kind of thrown off about because... They believed that she was A, either kidnapped, taken someplace else, or B, murdered in the Biltmore Hotel. But after holding Dylan for about a week, they they released him because they actually found Jeff Connors, surprise, surprise, and he gave conflicting statements to the police about his own connection with Shorts. Connors was also released soon after. Now, Eatwell believes that Dylan murdered Short, but Hansen commanded him to do it, that he was at the hest of Hansen. 
Eatwell said they killed Shorts at the Astor Motel. Dylan reported reportedly stayed there on and on January 15th, 1947, the motel owners found one of their suites, quote, covered in blood and fecal matter, end quote. And you didn't call anybody? Exactly. If there's one thing y'all learn from this episode, call the fucking cops. Just call the cops. All the time. Call them for everything. Don't, don't call them yeah. for everything. Call them for emergencies. Yeah, don't, don't, yeah, call don't them, call for, them for anything. Yeah. You'll get a ticket. Life-threatening emergencies. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, blood and fecal matter in my hotel room is not a life-and-death emergency. It could be. Blood. How much Very blood? True. How much blood are we talking? The fecal, also an emergency. Yeah. Because people are not paid enough to clean that up. There are some companies that will let their employees clean up fecal. Floors. I don't know. Witnesses also noted seeing a dark-haired woman who resembled that of short and a man who fit Hansen's description. Eatwell believes, and this is a quote, the angle is coming through more and more. It's a group of people involved in this killing, but because there is no forensic evidence, it's almost impossible to say. This person hit her on the head. This person cut her in two bits. What I can say on the basis of the evidence in my book and on the basis of what comes out since is that Dylan, Mark Hansen, and Jeff Connors were mixed up in this killing and it took place at the Astor Motel. It was covered up because Mark Hansen had connections with the police. End quote. Now, I know that was a lot of suspects. But as I said, somewhat in the middle of this, there's because this case was so popular and because it's still not solved to this day, there are so many theories surrounding it and there will continue to be until this case can be officially solved. And we need someone out there to literally solve this case so that it so that the family members and the people who were close to Elizabeth Short are able to finally get peace. And we honestly may never know the true story as to what happens behind Elizabeth Short and behind the Black Dahlia murder. Because a substantiated amount of evidence surrounding this case has disappeared. Literally just physical evidence has disappeared, which is beyond bizarre in my book. Yeah, how does it just disappear? Like, yeah. poof. The evidence it's, fairy took it. Exactly. The well, fairy. What, mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of the reason that I kind <laughs> of believe the, let's see, I believe the story about, I kind of believe the story about Dylan, and I kind of believe the story about Hodel, because they mentioned the police corruption, and there's no way that all of this physical evidence could just disappear like that if the police were not corrupt and if somebody did not catch them in the act or like doing something you know like they had to have had the police working for them from the beginning and it it's just bizarre i guess it was a police officer well then that it very well could have been but unfortunately that's not one of the suspects but it very well could have been he could have been the evidence fairy as well Mm -hmm. poofing it away. Because he'd have access. 
But why would he have had access or she, if he, he or she women can be murderers too? Why would they have taken away that evidence if it did not point to them as guilty? Because it could later. I mean, look yeah. at look at DNA. DNA's come a long ass way. Very well true. Well, yeah, that's the end of my story. Sorry it took so long. There, there are so many suspects for this case, but it's I'm crazy. glad you liked it. Mm-hmm. I know, right? Oh, I could literally go on a rant about it, but I'm not because I know that you have somewhat of a longer story too. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to. It was an accident and I did my math wrong on it anyways. You're all good. Well, that was a good story, Brie. Glad y'all enjoyed Bye. it. I didn't Lots say of I very it, but... crazy information. What? I said I didn't say I enjoyed it. But you, but you enjoy getting all the information. Something. I don't know what is wrong with me. <laughs> okay. All right. Let me Let's lighten go. the mood a little. So, fun fact for you guys. Do you guys know that March 20th is Alien Abduction Day? No. I'm that's bad. fun. Yes. Um... So when I did my math, I thought this episode came out on March 20th. And then I looked at it again today and I went, oh, nope, that comes out March 13th. So you guys are getting this week early so that you can properly celebrate National Alien Abduction Day. According you have to, to properly ce- celebrate it. Yeah. Perfect. Are, are you going to tell us how to get abducted? No. <laughs> uh, well, how I, are we I supposed have... to celebrate? <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe the story will help. I don't know. Um, but I am going to tell you guys about... The abduction of Betty and Barney Hill. Hell yeah. Do you guys know anything? Okay. Oh, so this is going to sound familiar. Fun. Okay. Well, anyway, so in honor of Alien Abduction Day, I'm giving it to you a week early and we'll just do an alien abduction week. Okay. All right. Well, I don't, I didn't have an alien abduction in my story, so it doesn't really count. I said week. So they have a whole week. Okay. I like that. Anyways, um, before we get into the story, I just want to clarify, there's two types of people. There are people that were contactees and there are abductees. The difference is that contactees actually have like a pleasant experience with other entities. Um, whereas abductees, they don't. Do not. And it's typically involuntary. I think it's involuntary for either. In honor of that, we are going to be talking about our first official alien abduction story, which I'm very excited about. And... The Betty and Barney Hill incident is one of the first, if not the first ever, widely publicized alien abduction account. Medium.com states that it was so widely publicized because it was the first alien abduction claim in the United States, the first reported case of missing time, the first use of hypnotic regression to recover abduction memories, the first public description of what we know as the greys, the grey aliens, and the first time a couple had claimed a simultaneous abduction. Question. Yes. What city and or state is this in? Can you give me two minutes and I'll get there? I'll give you a minute. You don't and a even half. you don't even know the um the time frame yet Eight. either, so calm Whoa. down. Wait, I'm so sorry. I just have to say, those of you who are fans of American horror story, this was not planned, but we literally just did this. I literally explained a true story of a woman who was projected in American Horror Story and you are now explaining a true story of people who were abducted in American Horror Story. No fucking joke. That is Oh my god, that's crazy! No way! You always find a way to bring it back to American Horror Story. Okay. Okay. No, no, no. This 
I literally just looked up Betty and Barney Hill American Horror Story. It says, remember Asylum's Kit and Alma Walker? According to producers, they were inspired by a couple named Barney and Betty Hill. (gasps) So fucking pops, let's go! (laughs) So, as you can hear, Brie is so fucking pumped. Let's go. Let us go. Shall we? After you. Okay, sorry. So Betty and Barney, I'm going to give you guys some backgrounds, background on them, and you guys can go to picture number one. To answer your question, that did take us a minute and a half to get to, Amanda. Betty and Barney Hill lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Both Barney and Betty had previously been married and had children with their past spouse, spouses. Um, Betty's were actually adopted children from what I read, but they, she had still officially adopted them. Barney was a World War, World War II vet. And after he was in World War II, he was a mail carrier with USPS, United States Postal Service. Betty was a social worker. She had actually graduated after her divorce from her ex-husband. And they were members of their local Unitarian church. Um, for those of you that don't know, Unitarian is just the belief that, they're, that God is a single entity rather than a trinity. So that's the difference. And Barney and Betty are an interracial couple in the 60s. I'm I'm not spiritual whatsoever. What's the difference between a single entity and a trinity? So they believe that God is one single person, whereas the trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, that makes sense. Yes, that's the trinity. So Barney and Betty are an interracial couple, and this is in the 60s. Um, (laughs) They are also members of the NAACP, which is the National Association for Advancement of Colored People. Barney sat on the board of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. They were active and very well respected in their community. Um, and they did get married in May of 19, 1960. And due to work obligations, Barney actually continued to live in Philadelphia until about March of 1961, 10 months after they had gotten married. What is the age difference between them? Because for some reason, Betty looks significantly older than Barney. Um, I don't know. I didn't look up their birthdays. Okay. I was just curious. Um, I know they were both married in past lives. I don't, I, I don't remember. I think Betty's younger than him. Really? I think so. That's crazy. Okay. So they were doing the long distance thing before they got married as well as a few months after. So 10 months into their marriage, Barney is finally transferred to the Boston post office, which is still 60 miles from Portsmouth. But he's willing to do that 60, 60 mile a drive and work nights to be near Betty. Um, Fucking sweet. I mean, anything for love, right? I love it. Love it. Very tender, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I love and, it when other people are like that. It makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. Make you uncomfortable. Do you not experience love that way? No. So in September 1961, Barney and Betty took a kind of impromptu honeymoon. From what I can see, they actually left with what they had in their pocket, which was less than $70, and they were going to make a trip to Niagara Falls. Hell yeah. Okay. So on September 19th, 1961, Betty Barney and Delcy, their dog, were headed home from vacation, and they were driving south of Lancaster, New Hampshire. While they're driving, Betty sees a what she describes as a bright point of light in the sky. And she initially thinks it's like a, a shooting star, a falling star, something like that, where she's like, oh, cool, make a wish. But then this shooting object went upward across the, like, it shot up. So maybe that's not what you want to see. And yeah, I don't she, think that's a normal flight yeah. path. 
flight path. That's what I want to see. Yeah. That's so cool. And she sees it kind of go across the face of the moon, and it's kind of fly- flying in a very weird pattern. And she's she thinks, oh, maybe it's a satellite, and it's like, no, that's not what satellites do. And she thinks, uh, maybe it's a uh, a plane, but no, that's not a plane can't maneuver like that. So she's just like, okay, I don't know what this is. She continued watching it, and it kind of began to grow larger as if it was moving towards them. And it was also moving very erratically. Betty's curiosity gets the better of her, and she convinces Barney to pull over. Her excuse, of course, is we've got to walk Delcy. She's got to go potty. It's been a long trip. Damn it, Betty. Damn it, Betty. And so Barney pulls over, and he stops the car at a picnic spot that's just south of Twin Mountain. Uh, I was going to create a map for you guys of all these things, but then I figured it was too much energy. So anyways... Um, so if you guys know where Twin Mountain is, Love use it. your imagination. I have no idea where it is. I It's New Hampshire. So Where um, is New Hampshire? According to Texas, where is New Hampshire? It would be east. This way. Northeast. No. Nope. Nope. It would yeah. be northeast. Northeast. Up towards like Maine. Up yes. in there. Oh, okay. I know where Maine is. Yeah, That's way up there. Before. Yeah. It's like one of the small ones right there next to me. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Barney stops the car at this picnic area just south of Twin Mountain and... But I'm assuming Barney is walking the dog. Betty breaks out the binoculars and she is looking at this falling star and she sees that there's this odd shaped craft that was flashing multicolored lights that passes in front of the face of the moon. And she convinces um, Barney to look and he's like, it's a plane, it's a plane. But Betty, her sister, had actually had uh, an experience, seen a UFO, something several years earlier. So I think she was kind of getting to that stage faster than Barney. Because she has that personal connection with it. And Barney's looking. He's like, no, no. It's just an airplane. But then he kind of, that theory only lasts a second for him. Because the craft all of a sudden turns. Like very, how a plane couldn't turn. And it starts rapidly approaching towards Betty and Barney. He said it didn't change directions like you would see an airplane do. And seeing the craft start coming near them. He's like, let's get in the car and go. So they get in the car and they start driving. But, I mean, they're driving on this relatively isolated road for the time of night because it was late at night and they were going through a mountain stretch and they're watching this ufo and they very much felt like they were in a game of cat and mouse with this thing where it was kind of following and chasing them and they're just watching it moving kind of slowly and they watch the craft approach and they actually see it pass over a restaurant and a signal tower at the top of cannon mountain near the old man formation that's just a rock formation that looked like the profile of a man that collapsed in 2003. So it's not there. Sorry, but uh, that's what the old man formation is. Betty believed that the craft had to be at least one and a half times the length of the cliff profile, the cliff profile. Um, and that cliff profile was 40 feet long. So she's saying one and a half it had to be at least 60 feet long. Um, the craft appeared to be rotating and would move silently through the sky. About one mile south of the rock formation, Nope. About one mile south of Indian Head, they saw the craft rapidly descend towards them. So this thing is coming at them. And this causes Barney to actually stop in the middle of the highway. Like he's slamming on brakes because he's thinking it's going to land on the road and they're going to crash into it. And Barney stated the craft hovered about 80 to 100 feet from them. And it reminded him of a large pancake. So Barney grabs a pistol and he grabs the binoculars and steps out of the car. He's prepared. I guess as prepared as he can be. And through the binoculars, Barney states to have seen 8 to 11 humanoid creatures. And these creatures were wearing 
glossy black uniforms, and black military-esque caps. And they also appeared to move with military-like motions, where it's kind of that stiffer, more, like, controlled. And I'm sorry, humanoid figures? So they weren't necessarily human, but they weren't... They're humanoid figures. They resemble a human, but he cannot confirm that they are. Okay. And so these figures look to be, like, from his perspective, it looks like they are looking down at Barney and Betty. And what he sees is that all but one of the figures moved to, like, this back hallway or back panel towards the back of the craft. And the one that remained in the window watched Barney and communicated with him somehow. Stay where you are and keep looking. So this thing wants Barney to make some eye contact. Don't tell me what to do. And they see lights from the wing shine red and a long structure begins to descend from the craft. And that is one staircase I would not be going to. It's not the stairway to heaven. Barney sees this and he's thinking that the craft is like 80 to 50 feet away from him. And it's now maybe 300 feet over over his head at this point. Actually, I misspoke. Um, he was saying that the... Nope. It, it is now 300 feet over his head at this point. Uh, I don't think that's right. I think that's supposed to say 100 feet over his head. Anyways, he realizes that this is probably bad news for him. And he's like, oh, crap. And he rushes back to the car and he's hysterical. He is telling Betty, they're going to capture us. We've got to go. Let's go somewhere else. So he gets in the car, and when he gets in the car, the craft adjusts positions to be directly over their car. And Barney's like, nope, and he just keeps dri- he starts driving as fast as he could, trying to escape this craft. And he tells Betty, watch for the craft, watch for the craft. So Betty's poking her head out of the window, trying to look up and see where the craft is. Betty looks for the craft, and they begin hearing what they call a rhythmic beeping. They claim that the sound seems to, like, bounce off of the trunk of their car. And when they start hearing this rhythmic beeping the car they're feeling vibrations through it and like they're saying it's tingles passing through them and they believe that they at this point they begin experiencing an altered altered state of consciousness leaving their minds dulled they hear a second sound of or a second round of the beeping and they regain full consciousness and they're dazed and they realize they've traveled almost 35 miles but had only vague memories of that stretch of road they remember taking the un- an unplanned and sharp turn and coming to a road, a roadblock of a fiery orb. But that's kind of a spotty memory. They don't remember much about it. And the hills finish their drive and return to their house at about dawn. Dawn. And, <laughs> yes. So at about dawn. So like five, six in the morning, they return home. And when they get home, they both have like really strange behaviors. They both said they just felt dirty. And Betty insisted that they keep the luggage near the back door. Instead of bringing it in and getting everything unpacked, leave it by the back door. Um, they also noticed that their watches had stopped working. And at first they didn't think anything of it because they're just like the wind-up watches that you shake to get them working. But they wouldn't work after that. So those watches that they had never worked again. Oh. And um, the leather strap on their binoculars was torn and they couldn't recall how it had gotten torn. Barney's nice dress shoes were scuffed, but they don't know how. And Barney also felt very compelled to thoroughly examine his genitals in the bathroom. He found nothing unusual, but he did make sure that everything was good down there. And they each took long showers to remove what they considered contamination, what I would consider cooties. And they went and took a nap because they needed to recover from the drive. I mean, that was a long drive. They were supposed to be taking a four-hour drive. It's later in my notes. So they take a nap, and after they get up, 
they decide someone convinces the other one like we need to like draw what happened but they don't want to talk about it beforehand they go to separate rooms and they draw what they had seen and you guys can go to picture number two i couldn't find the original drawing of what they drew and compared them to each other but this is basically what they depicted in those drawings to their shock the images that they drew were almost identical at this point, they decide that they need to try to reconstruct the events that they had witnessed. But after the first beeping that they heard, their memories were incomplete. They couldn't remember really anything. And eventually they would realize that they should have been home close to three in the morning, but they hadn't returned home until about five, six-ish. So they couldn't remember this random two to three hour gap in time. And... As they begin putting items away, Betty places her clothes in the closet and the dress that she puts away, she notices was torn at the hem, the zipper and the lining. And again, she doesn't know what this is from. She doesn't have any memory about how this got torn or anything like that. And later on, she retrieves the dress to try to mend it and she notices this pink powder on it. And so she puts it on the clothesline outside and all this pink powder blew, blew away in the wind. And... It was likely fairly windy because they were expecting a hurricane or a large storm of some sort. And so the wind blowing it away would not be unusual. But um, she did notice that as it was hanging up. And she did try to mend the dress, but she couldn't find a way to mend the dress. It was just irreparably damaged. And so she's like, okay, I'm going to throw this dress away. And then she just kind of feels this urge after throwing it away that she needs to keep the dress. And she goes and gets it out of the garbage and she puts it in her closet. And over the years, the dress eventually was examined by five different laboratories for forensic anything. Um, to my searching, they found nothing fishy on the dress, nothing that was radioactive or unusual on the dress. Now, Betty and Barney are reluctant to talk to people about their experience at first. They're like, people are going to think we're crazy. Like, we think we're crazy. I don't know what's happening. But Betty does decide to call her sister and she tells her sister of the experience and her sister is very supportive and she tells her to try to test for radiation. I don't know how accurate this is, but one of the articles I said was that you can use a compass to look for radiation. Um, it'll go haywire if radiation is found. And so Betty decides, all right, cool. So she goes out to their car just trying to find anything. And she sees these shiny circles all over the back of the trunk that are like the size of like a silver dollar all over the back of the trunk of the car that weren't there before. And when she puts the compass on those spots, it freaks out, just whirling around, going crazy. Just um, those spots? Yes. When she moved it away, it wouldn't do that. Or on other parts of the car that didn't have those spots. Interesting. So, so she, this freaks her out. So she has to go and get Barney to come outside. But Barney is refusing because he was like, I'm just trying to move on from this. I don't want this. I didn't ask for this. I don't want to deal with this. But eventually... Barney and some neighbors end up outside and they experiment with the circles on the trunk of the car and with the compass. And they don't know what it's doing. They don't quite, quite understand. Also, within weeks of them returning home, their dog, Delcy, was diagnosed with a fungal infection and respiratory problems that were treated by a vet. No, you leave the dog alone. Their dog also began whimpering and running in her sleep, which isn't strange. But they did think it was more so than what a typical dog would. Like it was more panicky and more aggressive. And they do initially not consider this to be anything connected to the night of September 19th and 20th. But eventually they realized that they had not given Delcy a bath after returning home. So anything that could have possibly been on her was potentially still on her. Now, the Hills are persuaded to reach out to Pease Air Force Base. And they do this rather quickly. 
Um, on September 21st, 1961, Betty calls to report it to Pease Air Force. Air Force. They do report it to Pease Air Force Base, and they were very feel- fearful, like I said, of being labeled crazy. And so when they initially report it, they do withhold some information. They don't talk about the missing time. They just basically say, hey, we think we saw something. And on September 22nd, Paul W. Henderson, Major Paul W. Henderson, reaches out to the Hills to have a more detailed interview. And they agree to that interview, and they will go on to do it. Um, Betty does, within days, begin checking out books from the library about UFOs. She does check out one that's written by a retired Marine Corps Corps major, Donald E. Kehoe. And Donald E. Kehoe was the head of uh, a civilian UFO research group. So she was starting to do her own research at this point, trying to figure out what was going on. On September 26, 1961, Henderson releases his initial report that the Hills likely misidentified Jupiter. And they later change this to several different things. They state optical condition, which is basically saying they misidentified Jupiter in their fancy terms. Um, They said the inversion or eventually it was finalized with insufficient data. So they don't know. Did they just like insult these people in as many ways as they possibly could? Because that's what it sounds like. Yes. and. This report will, is later sent to Project Blue Book. For those of you that don't know what Project Blue Book is, it is the U.S. Air Force's UFO research project. And based off of their insufficient data finding, many people actually believe that there was a government cover-up about the UFO that Betty and Barney had seen that night. And the reason being is because of how the report read and other reports read. I didn't... Um, they basically explained that there's enough evidence to say that there was possibly... Uh, a government cover-up that had been completed uh, around the 26th, 29th timeframe of September, and that the Air Force was just basically like, nope, nothing happened, you guys are crazy. Um, so that is one belief that there was that cover-up. On September 26th, Betty also writes to Kehoe, the author of the book that she checked out, and she gives him the full story. She doesn't hold back any details, and she tells him in this letter that they were considering hypnosis just because they were kind of concerned, they didn't know what was going on, And the letter is eventually passed to Walter N. Webb, who is also a member of the same UFO civilian group, research group, sorry. Walter Webb is also an astronomer, and they do eventually meet with him. Now, on or about September 29th, 1961, Betty begins having very vivid dreams, and these dreams last for five consecutive nights. And Betty actually claims to have never recalled dreams with such vivid details. Like, she doesn't know of any time in her life that she's had a dream with such memory-like um, imagery in her head. She has five that go across, five of these nightmares that go across five nights, but they're all, like, one, one story, basically. Um, and Betty does tell Barney about the dreams, but he's kind of like, sorry you're having these dreams, but let's move on, and he kind of, he drops it. And she, she doesn't talk to him about it really much after that, um, just because he wants to forget about it. Barney is trying to move forward and forget about what happened, even though they can't really remember what happened. Now, the dreams did stop very abruptly five days after they started, so they abruptly start, abruptly end, and she did think about these dreams quite often, and in November of 1961, she would actually end up documenting the dream details in her own diary, which I have for you. So, in her dream, Barney and Betty encounter a roadblock late at night, and there are humanoid creatures surrounding their car. Uh, They lose consciousness and struggle to regain control, and she soon realizes that she's being forced by two small men to walk into a forest. 
And she realizes that Barney's behind her, but when she calls to Barney, Barney doesn't respond. And when she's looking at him, it looks like he's in this trance or a sleepwalking state. So he's not responding to her. In her description of the dream, the creature stood about five feet to five, five, four. Uh, They wore matching blue uniforms with caps similar to what was worn by military cadets. They appeared to be nearly human with black hair, dark eyes, and prominent noses and bluish lips. They also had a grayish colored skin. Now, Betty Barney and the creatures walk up a ramp onto a disc-shaped craft that appeared to be metallic, and they're separated. So Barney's like, uh, not Barney, I'm sorry. Betty's like, uh, nope, we're not being separated. She protests with the creatures, and they, the one that she refers to as the leader, later tells her that if we have you guys together, it's going to take longer. We need to separate you guys so that we can get these exams done sooner. And so she's like, all right, fine. And they're placed in separate rooms. In Betty's room, because obviously these are Betty's dreams, she doesn't know what would have happened to Barney. So in Betty's dreams, in her room, a new man that looks very similar to the other other men enters with the leader to examine her. And the second figure she would come to call the examiner. And she said the examiner was pleasant. He was calm. He was very well-mannered. Like he wasn't being weird or whatever. I mean, granted, he's not human either. But both the leader and the examiner spoke to her in English. But she states that their mouths did not move when speaking to her. She said the examiner's English was imperfect. So she did have some difficulty understanding him. So it was more broken English than anything else. And they told Betty that they were going to conduct conduct some tests just to find the differences between humans and the craft's occupants. Betty was stripped. And while that was happening, happening, she had to teach the creatures how to use the zipper in the back of her dress. Because they didn't know how it worked. And so they were ready to just kind of tear the dress off of her because they were not sure how it worked. And then, are you okay, Amanda? That was a concerned face. I was just thinking, like, God, this poor woman, you're already going through this heinous ordeal. And now you have to teach these things how to use a zipper. Yeah. But, but she- I mean, to be fair, it's in her subconscious. Like, she, for some reason, doesn't remember it. So, I mean, she does, her subconscious remembers it in her dreams, but she doesn't. Yeah, like, your your body remembers trauma. Yeah. Yeah. So, she was led to a chair. There's, like, a bright lamp shining down on the chair to illuminate her. And the examiner, he cuts off a lock of Betty's hair. He examines her eyes, ears, mouth, teeth, throat, and hands. Trims her fingernails, saving her trimmings. He examines her feet, her legs, and he uses a dull knife, similar to, like, an envelope opener to scrape some of her skin onto what she refers to as a cellophane bag or onto a petri dish. Both were present in articles. Yes, they're vastly different. Was that your question? No, we're getting real personal here. Okay, like everything sounded pretty standard until you told me that you trimmed my fingernails because at first I was like, oh, that was nice. But they're keeping the fucking clippings. Okay, but I kind of understand in a way because if this story is corroborated if it is proven to be true right they are just trying to find information on a different species right just as what maybe take a time out from that thought for a minute yeah so they communicate that they're going to test her nervous system and they thrust a needle into her navel and this causes betty very agonizing pain she is in severe pain from this yeah and I fucking bet. The the leader approaches and he does some voodoo magic, waves his hand over her eyes, and the pain just kind of vanishes. 
no big deal. No big deal. And she does come to believe that this is some type of a pregnancy test that they were actually testing. There's other ways to do that. Less invasive. Well, if they're thrusting a needle into her navel, she didn't say how big of a needle, but that seems dangerous for a pregnancy test. Can't you just let me pee on a stick? No. Uh, You might have done that the first time, but not anymore. They don't know what pregnancy tests are in America and the world. So they just they just poke it to see if they can find anything that is solid. Let's not shake it and listen to the inside for all I care. You don't stab me. They could have also asked. It's very true. You know what? Every time I go to the doctor, they ask. I tell them no every time, but they ask. During the exam, okay, this is either during or after the exam. I wasn't quite sure. But some of the other creatures excitedly rush into the room where Betty's being examined, and they're holding Barney's teeth. Because (laughs) of them. Oh, don't panic yet. And they're so excited that Barney's teeth could be removed. And Betty actually explains to them that they're dentures. She explains why he has dentures, and she's kind of laughing it off like, okay, this is funny, you know, because he's got dentures. You could have fucking led with that. You could have said they ran into the room with his dentures. That wasn't as fun. What would be the fun in that, Amanda? (laughs) Come on. I was imagining them running in with like a handful like this of just teeth. Okay. As soon as she said they as soon as she said they were excited that his teeth could be removed, I immediately thought in my head, oh, they're dentures. Yeah, when she started explaining it, but No, no, no. As soon as she said that his teeth could be removed. I mean, yeah, you know, when she said his teeth, I was thinking, you know, like one or two teeth. Okay, I guess they just pulled those out. But when she, as soon as she said, yeah, his teeth could be removed, dentures. But Look, she they stabbed her in the stomach. So I don't know what. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Amanda, you physically yes. have your own teeth that you're planning to send to people and you can't handle them being excited about his teeth being out? Yeah, come on. You gotta send them to aliens now. Y'all told me that shit was abnormal, and I trusted you. So is it normal, or is it abnormal? I need to know. It's not gonna change. It's still abnormal. Okay, that's not gonna change the fact that I'm keeping them, but I might tell less people now. I don't (laughs) think you will, but... I don't think that you can tell less people now, because... It has been broadcast to the internet. Anyways, so after Betty's exam was complete, the examiner leaves, and Betty and the leader are engaging in conversation. Betty picks up this book, it's got strange symbols, and the leader says, that, oh yeah, sure, take it home, have fun. Well, not that she could read it, but he's like, yeah, take it home. And Betty ends up asking him, hey, where are you guys from? Like, she, she makes a joke of it, going like, I don't really know much about astronomy or anything like that. She asks where they're from, and he does end up showing her a star map. And he kind of points out, like, okay, you're here, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, where are you on this map? And she's like, I don't know. And he's like, what's the point of me telling you where we're from? You don't know where we are. So, okay. I mean, yeah. valid. Yeah, but still, I don't like this guy. He feels like, I feel like this is, yeah, sure, you can have that book. What are you going to do with it? You can't read it. You don't even know where you're at. Why should I tell, sir, you stole me. You don't have the right to be condescending. And put my husband's teeth back. Well, they have that conversation and Barney and Betty begin to be escorted back to their car. And there is a disagreement that breaks out between the occupants of the craft. And there's bickering, there's something going on, and the leader takes the book back. And he tells Betty, you cannot have the book anymore um, because the other ones don't want you to have it. They don't even want you to remember what happened. No takesies backsies. Well, they did, so... They took these backsies. <laughs> no. I kind of imagine it like, you know, how someone like from behind goes like, yoinks your book and then pushes you forward. 
so that you're yes. like five feet away. I imagine <laughs> they did that when they were like about to get off of the the ramp onto Earth. <laughs> so she, he yeah. did that right before, and she couldn't. They just hovered up above him after that. You know. So let me get this straight. They didn't just take the book and push her five feet forward. They zoinked the book they, and pushed her five zoinked. feet forward. <laughs> Um, I don't know if they actually did that, but we're going to imagine that's what happened. They 100% (laughs) did that. I know enough about this man right now and the way he acts to know that he 1000% did that. Okay. We'll say he did that. Uh, So anyways, they didn't, they tell her like, we don't even want you to remember what happened. And she, she's telling him, I'm going to remember. F you all. I'm going to remember. Like she's not playing around. I like Betty. Okay. And they're taken back to their car and the leader suggests like, hey, why don't you watch us leave? Like, just watch the craft fly off. No biggie. He is so dramatic. He's he's auditioning for a part, obviously. What part? I don't know. If somebody does this. I imagine that like they're trying to cool themselves off because they're trying to like, because they want to blush, you know, but like oh. they're 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 just cooling themselves off because they don't want to blush. I am cooling so myself off. That's literally what I imagine you doing right now. You've got a crush on this alien and you're just trying to cool yourself off. Trying not to yes. blush in front of the camera. I'm sorry, let me just cool down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, you can do way better than this alien. I think Cody is the way better. I think Cody is the alien. That's news to me. <laughs> He's doing his makeup flawlessly every day. I see none of yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, with yet. gray skin and blue lips, damn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on he, point. he doesn't do any glitter shadows. He hasn't anyway. learned it yet. Keep oh. watching YouTube. Okay. Anyway, so he he tells them, like, maybe watch us depart. He probably tells them, you should probably watch us depart. Like, it's probably mm-hmm. not optional. Anyways, and that's the end of Betty's dreams. Now, remember, these are all dreams that we just went through. God, okay. So, she does write those down beginning in November. But before that, the Hills end up meeting with Walter Webb on October 21st, 1961. And Barney tells Webb what the beings were, or sorry, that the beings were, quote, somehow not human. So, he's recognizing that they're not human. And... They eventually end up spending six hours, Betty and Barney, separately retelling the story to Walter Webb um, from what they could recall. And Barney states that he had what he calls a mental block and suspects there are parts of the encounter that he would just prefer not to remember. He's like, I'm sure there is something in this I don't want to know anyways. And Webb is quoted saying... They were telling the truth, and the incident probably occurred exactly as reported, except for some minor uncertainties and technicalities that must be tolerated in any such observations where human judgment is involved. And what he means by that last part is like time, length, the visibility, apparent size, where you're guesstimating things. So Webb is like, yeah, something probably happened to him, and it's probably what they're saying. On November November 25th, 1961, the Hills were again interviewed by uh, the members of the, it's called NICAP, uh, which is just a human, U- or not a human, I'm sorry, a UFO civilian research group. They are humans. Hold on. Pause. They are also humans, to my knowledge. Anyway, so they're uh, interviewed by these members, C.D. Jackson and Robert E. Homan. And Jackson and Homan, they read Webb's initial report and kind of leaves them some more questions. They were curious about the length of the trip, and this is actually the point in which Betty and Barney realized they were missing that much time. They knew they were missing some time, but not two to three hours worth of time. 
because their journey was supposed to be about four hours and they were supposed to be home by three in the morning, two to three in the morning. And they didn't arrive home for several hours after that. And they just had no explanation. They were like, I don't remember most of that 35, 36 miles. They remembered the fiery orb and they really had just been trying to reason that it was the moon. They were like, "Mm, not us, not me. But Homan and Jackson burst their bubble and they tell them that the moon had set earlier in the evening. So it would not have been possible to be the moon setting. And eventually the subject of his hypnosis comes up. And at this point, it seems like Betty and Barney are like, no, we're going to do hypnosis. Yeah, you don't mess with Betty. Um, No, I'm learning. No, don't. Don't mess with bets. (laughs) All bets are off. Barney, he was just like, no, no, no. And he kind of more agreed to it, thinking it might help Betty put the whole thing to a rest. And Barney describes this whole thing as nonsense about her dreams. He's like, whatever, you're, they're whatever. They're just dreams, like no biggie. But he's like, okay, maybe I'll do it so that I can sh- get you to be quiet. I'm going to okay, blow my nose. But if she believes that they are real, why would she just completely downgrade her what she believes is real? Like, the, it does, n- no, no. J- but she's Guys. also fighting with what he believes to be real as well. And he's because also he... fighting to not remember. Yes. Well, right. exactly. Right. He's fighting to not remember. So she believes that this is real. In her experience, he is fighting to not remember whatever happens during this. And it... he's doing it for himself as well. Yeah. Uh, like he doesn't want to remember. Yeah. So by February 1962, the Hills were making frequent visits up to the mountains, hoping that visiting the scene might spark more memories for him. But they weren't really able to find where they had encountered the roadblock. However, they did locate in 1965, they did locate what they think was the capture site. So they're two different sites. Um, On November 23rd, 1962, the Hills attend a meeting at their church where the guest speaker is Captain H, I'm sorry, Captain Ben H. Sweat of the U.S. Air Force. Sweat was an amateur hypnotist and a UFO enthusiast. And the Hills approach him and they talk to him privately to tell him about their encounter. And Sweat's like, okay, interesting. Like, uh, the missing time is kind of what got him interested. The rest, he was like, "Mm, probably crap, but whatever. (laughs) And the Hills actually ask him, could you hypnotize us to recover the memories? But Sweat declines. And he's like, uh, I'm an amateur. You don't want me doing it. And he kind of tells him you might want to go to someone better. On March 3rd. So I'm just, I'm really going through this as a timeline. On March 3rd, 1963, the Hills first publicly discussed the UFO encounter with a group at their church. Up until this point, they've been relatively hush-hush. They're not going to like news outlets. They've told the Air Force, um... They've told close friends and family and they're telling people that they think could help them, but they're not like actively going and telling people their story. They are actually trying to keep a pretty low key profile about it and they're not trying to get any attention on it. But they do first publicly speak about their encounter with a group at their church on March 3rd, 1963. This is almost this is like a year and a half later. Now, on September 7th, 1963. But returns and he gave a formal lecture, a formal lecture on hypnosis to a meeting at their church. And after the lecture, the Hills tell him, oh, Barney's going to see a psychiatrist. And they really liked the psychiatrist. They trusted him like he was pretty cool. And uh, Sweat kind of says, well, why don't you ask the psychiatrist about hypnosis? And they're like, oh, okay, that's a great idea. So the next time they meet with uh, their doctor, he does ask and was referred to 
Benjamin Simon. Before they are able to meet with Benjamin Simon for their hypnosis on November 3rd, 1963, the Hills speak before an amateur UFO study group, like they're presenting. According to what I could see, this wasn't planned. They hadn't planned to speak at this group um, as like a presenter. They thought they would be going there to gain insight and in hearing others speak, but something happened and there they were. And again, up until this point, they really had just been keeping it quiet and not talking about it. Now, on December 14th, 1963, by the way, December 14th is my dad's birthday, so. Happy birthday, dad. Happy birthday, dad. Well, on December 14th. He wasn't born in 63 yet, though, so, yes. Happy birthday, dad. Happy unbirthday, dad. <laughs> Happy not born yet, dad. Yeah. Happy so. not yet half birthday, dad. Don't want this to go to your head, dad. I love you, but no. Anyways, so they meet with Dr. Simon, or with uh, Benjamin Simon. And he determines that this UFO incident was causing Barney a lot of worry and anxiety, much more than what Barney was actually admitting to. And at this point in time, Barney was also going through medical issues with ulcers that were not resolving with traditional medical treatment. And they thought it could be caused from anxiety as well. Or from somebody stabbing you in the stomach. No one has said anything about Barney being stabbed in the stomach. Only they Betty. did it to her. Yeah, but if they know the females are the only ones that get pregnant. Look, I don't know. I'm just saying. God knows what they did to those poor people. Well, no, we know. I'll tell you later. Oh, shit. <laughs> so, um, Simon's, he does dismiss the UFO theory as, like, that did not happen. You guys didn't see a UFO, but something happened. And so, he does think it's very obvious that the Hills genuinely think they had witnessed a UFO with aliens in it. And so, he does, he's like, yeah, let's do hypnosis. So, they are good candidates for it. On January 4th, 1964, remember this all started in September of 61. On January 4th, 1964, they began their hypnosis. Betty and Barney were always hypnotized separately and they weren't allowed into one another's session. This is to prevent any false memories or things like that being planted from hearing one another's, um, one another's sessions. And he also, every time after the session, after he found that these um, sessions were causing a lot of traumatic memories to come back up. Um, he does reinstate amnesia after each session so that they, he doesn't traumatize the hills any more than they already are. And so they do start on January 4th, and their final hypnosis session would be June 6th, 1964. So six months later. And Barney was the first to be hypnotized, and this is what he recalls. So, like I said, his recollection of whatever happened was very highly emotional and very fearful so under hypnosis you could see that hypnosis or not, not hypnosis you could see that emotion and fear and they often had a lot of different emotional out outbursts through all of the sessions and due to his fear barney's hypnosis state reports that he kept his eyes closed for most of the abduction because of how fearful he was um he could re remember standing outside of the car and looking at the craft and he remember, remembered running from the craft when he ran back to the car when they were when the binocular strap broke. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't say that. When he ran back to the car to tell Betty they're going to capture us, he remembers that's when the binocular strap broke. So now, they, now he's like, okay, well, that makes sense. They drove and he had just randomly been compelled to pull off the road and drive into the forest or into the woods. And when he did that, they see six men standing on the dirt road and they were waving their arms, signaling them to stop. like stop here and their Don't car they didn't have a choice because their car stalls and three of the men approach their car and they tell barty don't fear us just don't fear us we're safe don't tell me what to do 
Um, if you're abducting me, I'm gonna fucking fear you. Yeah, this doesn't really calm Barney's nerves. Um, but the Not leader, me. yeah, the leader uh, tells Barney, "Okay, well, close your eyes. Like, want to calm down? Close your eyes." And this so asshole he... again. <laughs> He's in both stories. Um, uh. So he states that when his eyes were open, the beings would stare into his eyes with a terrifying, mesmerizing effect. And while hypnotized, Barney would make statements about the eyes, and these are some of those statements. God. I felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes. Oh, those eyes, they're there in my brain. I was told to close my eyes because I saw two eyes coming close to mine, and I felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes. All I see are these eyes. I'm not even afraid that they are not connected to a body. They're just there. They're just up close to me, pressing against my eyes. That's creepy as hell. Uh-huh. That's heinous. So they get out. They This is still Barney's recount of what happened. Taken onto the pancake-shaped uh, craft, and Barney and Betty are separated. And he's led to a room by three men. He was told to lie on an exam table. And Barney hears... When he hears the creature speaking, it's typically in what he describes as a mumbling language, and he doesn't recognize it. He's like, I have, this isn't Spanish. I don't know what you guys are speaking. Now that he spoke Spanish. But it wasn't something he would recognize. Betty does describe similar mumbling languages, and they do state when they speak to Barney, he said that they did it, oh, whoa, 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 I read that wrong. When they did speak to Barney, he stated that they did it through what Barney would refer to as thought transference. Or he just didn't know the word of telepathy or the concept. And so he called it thought transference. They didn't remember or couldn't recall the creature's mouths moving when they spoke to them in English or spoke at all. So they have no idea how they spoke. But um, for for most of the exam, Barney kept his eyes closed. So much of the memories around the exam are fragmented. Um, Someone had felt his spine. They seemed to be counting his vertebrae. Uh, (laughs) A cup like the... Vice was just over his genitalia, and while he did not experience pleasure or an orgasm, he believed that they had in fact taken a sperm sample via a cup. Over, yes, like they placed it. Like, did over. he did he feel like a poking or anything? Like, you he know, doesn't like describe needle? anything. I think it felt more like a suction cup. That's but what I. Envisioned. How would you do that through skin? I don't know. I am not an alien. Okay, that you know of. Anyway. <laughs> And that's an email. <laughs> a cylinder tube was then inserted into his anus and quickly removed. Huh. No biggie. Um, I have after- those occasionally. <laughs> okay. Colonoscopy? Yes. Um, after the exam, he was taken back to the car where he was dazed, confused, and he watched the craft leave. A light appeared on the road and he was quoted saying, oh no, not again. And in Barney's recall what happened, Benny, or Betty had, expe- had speculated that the light was just the moon. And they hear, they keep, or I'm sorry, they hear the beeping and Barney attempts to actually recreate the beeping in his memory just to like debunk like whatever it was. Cause he's like, I bet it's something loose in the trunk. And so he's like swerving on the road trying to figure it out. And this is still in his hypnosis state. He's saying this. And after that, when he comes out, the, his final memories are of them returning home. And we all know what happens when they return home. So that's Barney's hypnosis sessions. That's what they get out of it. All right. I'm curious what Betty has to say. Well, is it Betty's, the same as her dream? Let me speak. Give me a minute. Damn. Oh, wow. I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> so Betty's sessions were also emotional and very fearful. There was actually uh, either one or several sessions that were cut short due to Betty's emotional response. Like it was too much. They couldn't continue. Oh, Betty. And what Betty recalls is basically the same thing as her dreams about the UFO abduction. Uh, there are some differences pertaining to like the capture and the release. And the men's men differed in appearance more in the dreams. And the order of the abduction happened differently in the hypnosis state. But we have the general idea because the dreams were not necessarily in order. So she pieced them together thinking, okay, this makes sense. And then this and this and this. So I think in her hypnosis state, she actually got on the craft, got the book, then was examined and then did the examination and then left. So, and then also the other difference was that the technology on the craft was different. And really what their hypnotic regression said, both for Barney and Betty, they were pretty consistent with one another's story. Simon even gives Betty the uh, suggestion that she could sketch a copy of the star map that she described. And she describes it as like a 3D pro projection or like a hologram as we would know it. Um, and she's, she does that. The map had a ton of stars and she actually identifies only the ones that stood out to her. And it consisted of 12 prominent stars connected by lines and three lesser ones that formed a distinctive triangle. Um, and she, she said she was told the, oh, sorry. She was told that the straight connected lines are like the solid lines that were connected between stars. They formed trade routes or they showed trade routes. And where the dashed lines on it were, and we'll get into the star map in a couple minutes, um, but where the dashed lines were, um, were like less traveled stars. Anyway, so basically what Simons concludes is that he speculates that Barney's recollection of the UFO encounter was just a fantasy inspired by Betty's dreams. He's not discounting their anxiety, their stress, their emotion from it. He does think that portion um, came from knowing Betty's dreams and his subconscious made it up. Um, he just thought it was really the most reasonable and consistent explanation. He was like, mm, it's the only thing I can think of. And both Barney and Betty just reject this. They're like, no, we were abducted by aliens. But that is also common amongst abductees. And he, Barney's just like, no, our memories were like consistent. Like, I don't understand how, like, we still had unique stories, but they were consistent with one another. Like, she was probed, I was probed, it was just a little differently, you know? Anyway, so, at this point, Barney's kind of ready to accept that they'd been abducted, and they kind of realize that this helps with their anxiety, and they can move forward. And they basically say, okay, we'll agree to disagree. Simon did write an article about the Hills for a psychiatric opinion um, magazine or book or something, and he explains the conclusion on the case, but this isn't publicized. So, I mean, at this point, they're still being relatively quiet, not a lot of people know about their um, encounter. After their hypnosis sessions, the Hills just try to get back to their regular life and move forward. They're like, okay, well, whatever. We just don't go up that mountain anymore. But on October 25th, 1965, there is a front page story in the Boston Traveler that uh, says UFO chiller did they seize couple. And reporter John H. Luttrell had allegedly allegedly been given audio tape recordings of a lecture the Hills had made in late 1963. All right, which one of you assholes leaked it? Yes. The couples believe that the tapes had been given to them to uh, Luttrell by a close friend, and they actually went to the grave believing this. Like, no, this bro, he gave them our tapes. However, others believe that he had created the tapes himself, whether he was in the audience 
um, or had someone in the audience for him. They just think that it wasn't a close friend that betrayed them. So that one's unclear. On October 20th, so that was on October 25th. On October 26th, 1965, United Press International picks up the story and the hills become international news. So you guys can now look at picture number three, which is just Barney and Betty with like a newspaper about themselves. Oh, I've already looked at all the pictures, bro. Can you not look at all the pictures? Follow along, damn it. Anyways, um, now they're like international UFO stars, I guess. I don't know. Is that a UFO pun? They're stars? I think so, but I didn't mean to. (laughs) So, yes. Anyways, they now are like international news. Their story is huge. And they end up becoming a huge influence in the UFO community. In 1966, John G. Fuller secured uh, the Hills Cooperation and Simon's, uh, Dr. Simon, his co- cooperation and wrote the book, The Interrupted Journey. And this book was considered to be uh, full of skepticism and maybe a little biased. So that wasn't their favorite thing, but you know, whatever. So that book is released. No, I did not read it. In 1968, you guys can now go to picture four. A Marjorie Fish from Ohio reads Fuller's book. And she's interested in this star map concept that Betty presents. And she kind of wonders, and Marjorie Fish is a school teacher and an amateur astronomer. So she's like, well, I'll take a swing at it, no big deal. Um, And she wondered if it could be deciphered to find which star system the UFO had potentially come from. She assumed that one of the 15 stars on the map must represent Earth's sun and constructed a 3D model of the nearby sunlight stars. What's up? Okay. Here's my theory. All right. So Sol is the sun, our sun, the Earth's sun. Okay. Um, um, that is, that's uh, Marjorie Fish's drawing. So she put that on there. Oh, okay. So she assumed that one of the 15 stars on the map must represent Earth's sun and constructed a 3D model of the nearby sunlight stars. So she used thread and beads and basing her stellar distances on those published in a 1969 Glee Star catalog and studied thousands of vantage points over years. Like she worked on this and she was able to identify the one that seemed to match the Hills map. And that was of the double star system Zeta Reticuli, Reticuli, I don't know how to say it, Reticuli, Reticuli, Zeta something. And she sent the analysis to Webb. And Webb kind of agreed with her conclusion. And Webb is, Walter Webb is um, one of the people that kind of first believed them, the Hills, to begin with. Like that lead alien. (laughs) So Webb sends the map to Terrence Dickinson, who's the editor of of an astronomy magazine. And Dickinson doesn't really endorse that it was like UFOs. He's not like, yes, it was UFOs. But he does still post this and it kind of leaves this is the first time that this journal leaves a UFO report up to debate. And so it's kind of like a big deal, but again, it's still just getting more publicity. And one of the more notable arguments against the star map was made by Carl Sagan and Steven Sauter, who argued the star map was nothing more than what they call a random alignment of chance points. Sagan eventually goes on to demonstrate that without the lines drawn in the maps, the Hills map bore no resemblance to a real life map. So he's like, without those lines, it's nothing. Like, who cares about these dots? David Saunders, he disagreed, and he claimed that a match among 15 stars of the specific spectral type, this is his quote, uh, uh, of the specific spectral type among the thousands of stars nearest the sun is at least 1,000 to 1 against. So he's saying there is no fucking way 
that someone could have literally just drawn a random chance of 15 dots and it matched. So he he fights with that and eventually in the 1990s um there's the European Hippocras mission which measures the distance to more than 100,000 stars across the sun and it's more accurate than it's ever been before and this actually shows that some of the stars in the in Fish's interpretation of the map were actually much further away than what they were previ- previously thought to be. So the stars were larger and further. Um, and this research reveals that some of the stars counted by fish uh, as the likely or likely to host life um, would have to be excluded by her own criteria. So what the criteria fish used to say this one probably could have life on it and da 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 da, uh, they find that well that probably can't be used. And actually, after many of these results, fish herself ends up rejecting her own hypothesis in a public statement. So she's like, "Yeah, no, I was probably wrong, but we sure tried." But based off of this star map, the incident is eventually known as the Zeta Reticuli incident. And the Zeta Reticuli is just a binary star system um, that's in the southeastern constellation of Reticulum. Basically, it's just another system that they think could hold life. Um, So Barney ends up dying at the age of 46 in 1969 of a cerebral hemorrhage. Uh, How old did I say? Yeah, 46. And Betty goes on to become a celebrity in the UFO community. She says she has several encounters throughout the remaining uh, remainder of her life. And she does pass on October 17th, 2004 at the age of 85. She never remarried after her and Barney because it was that true love story. So That's sweet. I love them. I do too. Well, you guys also haven't said anything about them being the rebels. Betty and Barney rebel. <laughs> oh my God. That didn't even occur to me. Oh, okay. Well, we weren't Holy on shit. We weren't on the same page for that one. The Rebels? From the, the Flintstones? Flintstones? The Neighbors? Oh, yeah, I never watched the Flintstones. Sorry. I'm too young for that. <laughs> I watched the Rebels. Amanda and I are too young for that. That was oh, before us. No, what? but I mean. I watched it. I watched it, but it was still 80s, before though, us. Right? It was still on like TV and stuff. Or did you grow uh, up in the 90s? Um, 90s, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, was literally born in 90. Yeah, mm-hmm. thanks for calling us older than what we are. Yeah, see, I was born in 99, so I grew up in the 2000s. Well, you know what? Soon you're going to start having to scroll down like we do when we yeah. put our ages somewhere. It's Those years are going to down. Because literally mm-hmm. sometimes it starts at like 2017 for some reason. And so I have to like scroll down <laughs> to 99. Um, the skeptics? So many psychiatrists later suggest that the abductions were just hallucinations brought on by stress of Betty and Barney being an interracial couple in the early 60s. Hey, you shut the fuck up. They handled that. I'm sorry. They handled their shit, okay? They they were in the NAACP. Like, you shut your mouth about Due to being an interracial couple. What? I mean, I get it, to be honest, but I feel like they handled that shit. Betty does basically say, absolutely not. Barney and I were happy. He was accepted by my family. There were no issues with our marriage that would have caused this. And even uh, Simons, who performed the hypnotisms, he didn't think their marriage was the cause of it either. So he agreed with Betty. Uh, Jim McDonald. Yes. Jim McDonald, who is a resident of the area where the abduction happened he was um he produced a detailed analysis of their entire journey and he basically says that the episode was 
provoked by them misperceiving an aircraft uh, near the cannon. Whoa. Misperceiving an aircraft. Wow. I don't know what I typed there. I don't know. But um, a flare, basically. They misperceived an aircraft flare of some sort as an UFO. And he basically was like, here's the record for the beacon that appeared. And here's the record for when it disappeared. And it's approximately the same time the hills see this UFO. And the rest of his theory for their experience and their uh, hypnosis is that they were stressed, they were sleep deprived, and they just had false memories uh, that were placed there under hypnosis or recovered during hypnosis. So he's like, no, none of it. How do you know that the government's not, how do you know that the government's just not covering it up, sir? Because they do that. Hate to tell you. Yes, the hills are later based off of this considered what's like the poster children for not driving while sleep deprived. All y'all shut the hell up and get off of, I love them. The person that says they're the poster children is Robert Schaefer, who is a columnist for the Skeptical Inquirer. He states that he was present for a national UFO conference in New York City in the 80s, and Betty was also there. And Betty presented some UFO photos that she had taken, and she showed what he says was like 200 slides. But he says they were mostly blips, blurs, and blobs against a dark background. So he's like, these were UFOs coming close, chasing her car, landing, like, no. And he says that after her talk had exceeded like twice the allotted time, he claims that Betty was jeered off the stage by the audience. And so he's kind of, he's trying to discredit her. So I, I get what he's trying to do, but he says that many of the UFOlogy leaders and top activists were not happy. And they basically said that that caused them to, to basically say that she was no longer credible. Um, in 95, Betty wrote a self-published book called Common Sense Approach to UFOs. And he says it's a delusional book filled with crazy stories and all this different stuff. I did not. Why do you keep either. coming at my girl? It's always going to be that person who will yes. try to. He also claims that in like as late as 77, Betty would go to UFO vigils at least three times a week. And at one of these, he says that she was joined by a John Oswald and John Oswald stated she's not really seeing UFOs, but she's calling them that. And he basically goes on to say that she can't distinguish between a landed UFO and a streetlight. And in 1990s, so this is still in an article that, uh, I'm sorry, this is in a different article that Schaefer wrote in 1990. He basically suggests that Barney's memory revealed under hypnosis were influenced by an episode of a science fiction television show, television show called The Outer Limits. And that show was broadcast about two weeks before Barney's first hypnotic se- session. He says that the feature, uh, the episode featured an extraterrestrial with large eyes who says, and I quote, in all the universes, in all the unities beyond the universes, all who have eyes have eyes that speak. The report from the regression feature featured a scenario um, that was pretty similar to like the television program. So he's basically like, no, his brain is pulling out this television program. And, um, they write wraparound eyes are an extremely uh, wraparound eyes are an extreme rarity in science fiction films. I know of only one instance they appeared on 
the alien of an episode of an old TV series, The Outer Limits. So they're basically, at this point, he's saying, um, I've only ever seen that once, and all of a sudden they're describing it two weeks later when they're being hypnotized. So someone that was familiar with Barney's sketch in The Interrupted Journey, the book that was initially written, um, they say it was done in collaboration with an artist named David Baker. And they're basically saying it resembled, (sighs) it just didn't resemble what they thought, and it resembled that same video, or not video, that same episode of the movie, and they just were like, no. And they go on to say he drew, drew these eyes in one of the, his hypnosis sessions, and it, like, on February 22nd, 64, but this was broadcast on February 10th, 64. So there's only 12 days difference, and they're just, they're fighting it tooth and nail. Betty, on the other hand, she's like, I have never even heard of the show Outer Limits. So I don't know what you're talking about, boy. Yeah, and I'm so Betty. she, yeah. So she basically is like, no, that didn't happen. The Betty and Barney Hill story, they end up shaping much of pop culture's views on alien abductions. Like, they're huge. And they cast the story in a new light on the alien encounters. Um, so rather than it being contactees, they shed light on abductions and on uh, abductees. So. That is the Betty and Barney Hill story. I think they were telling the truth and everybody, all of those, especially that man, he can go to hell. Okay. Let them live their life. Which one? The last man? Him too. The last guy that you were saying that he's just basically obsessed with them because everything he's like, well, she said this and her photos looked like blips and blobs. Like my guy, you need a new hobby. This is stalking at this point. Yeah. I didn't like him either. Mm -mm. I think that their story is pretty credible too. Okay. And I was telling Cody, I said, because um, he's like, do you think it happened? And I said, I can see both the skeptic side as well as their side. And I said, I don't know if it happened, but I think something happened to them on that mountain. Because how mm-hmm. do you account for a two to three hour time frame where they just have no more memories? If that was exactly what their hypnosis regression brought up, then I, I guess that's what it was. But something did happen. I just feel like more than anything, why would they? Why would they make this up? Okay. They were well respected in the community. They spoke in the NAACP. They, this is a power couple. Okay. So why would you come out? They were active in their church. Why would you come out of left field over here and be like, y'all, we got abducted by some aliens and I really need a shower and for somebody to do an exam on me, please. It doesn't make sense. Well, the other part of that is it's not like they sought out that publicity. Like they, they didn't even get publicity until like 64, 65, three to four years after it happened. And it's not like they just made it up on the spot. Like, oh yeah, that happened in uh, 61 because they reported it to Pease Air Force, Air Force Base and their reports are there. You can find them. So I just like something happened. I don't know what it was. I, I'm inclined to believe Betty and Barney. But I also haven't read all of the different viewpoint books that there are because there is one that's called Captured that I did start reading that actually is uh, written in tandem with their, uh, not in tandem, it's written with their niece, Betty's niece. So she helped research and write this book for them. Um, But also I haven't read the, um, The Interrupted Journey, which opens things up for skepticism. So it's like, I want to believe them just because I don't want someone to actually have memories of this horrible occurrence if it didn't happen. Like, I don't want it to have happened, like, obviously, but just having those memories is awful as well. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, there you guys have it. 
I hope you guys know how to now celebrate National Abduction Day, Alien Abduction Day. No, because you never told us. How do we celebrate it, Bryce? You go get abducted. Drive around a mountain. No, thank you. Okay. You asked. Maybe just get like an alien shape, like make alien shaped pancakes or something. I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. You get a sparkler. Yes. Wave it around your backyard at night. Get a no. different colored sparkler, a red sparkler. I will be secure in my house on March 20th, not outside trying to get abducted. I mean, I'm not either. I have a kid, so I think my responsibility is with her. Then James and outside. I don't think he'll do it. And he's already told me he doesn't want me to go to haunted places with her in tow. So I'm pretty sure he's probably not going to want me to go UFO hunting with her either. I'll be the one out of the three of us who gets abducted by aliens. Okay. Bye. Bye. As tribute. Okay. Bye. Don't drag us along. That's all we ask. Yeah. No. 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 Oh. I'll be like, oh yeah, let's let's go visit my my uh, friend in my friend named Amanda in Arkansas. Oh yeah, no, let's nope. go visit my friend named Bryce in Utah. They can nope. easily just look you up with their alien. Nope, I, I refuse. I, I I don't I don't need to tell them you know what exact place you live because they just they know they know Bryce from but, Utah. Oh, no. that's Bryce. Oh, Amanda from Arkansas. Oh, that's. I Amanda. don't think they care about us though. I'm sorry, my husband won't let me come outside to play. <laughs> I just don't want to. Nope. I'm locking the doors. Anyways, thank you all for listening to Hell on Heels podcast. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Um, our Instagram is Hell on Heels podcast. Our Twitter is Hell on Heels pod. Um, we also have a Facebook, so follow us there. If you want to support us, you can donate through Patreon. Um, if you have your own true crime or paranormal stories, please email us at hellonheelspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Linktree. Uh, easiest way to find our link tree is to just go to Instagram and click the link tree link. Uh, big shout out to James, Amanda's husband. Thank you for creating our intro music. We still love it. Uh, be sure to like, review, and subscribe on whatever platform platform you are listening on. Uh, if we're not on your preferred listening platform, please let us know, and we will work on getting those episodes up on those channels. This has been Hell on Heels podcast. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye, y'all.